0: David, thank you very much for joining me. Um, Why to lose the trek?
1: Well, I used to live in Kennington a few years ago and um, would often come here every now and then for uh, something to eat and especially to listen to the jazz upstairs. So I think it's a good combination of, um, yeah, food and music. I've now actually moved to North London, which feels like a bit of a betrayal, actually, Finsbury Park. But, um, yeah, it's okay. Not as good as Kennington, but... uh, Yeah, it's okay.
0: There is a bit of a north-south divide in London as well, isn't there? Which is probably going to be a theme throughout
1: this podcast. (laughs) Exactly, yeah. It's uh, common in this country, I suppose, yeah.
0: Well, listen, there's only one place to start this. Could you describe the moment the exit
1: poll came out as you saw it? Uh, Shock. Uh, Absolutely shocked. I uh, had my eye on the Tory numbers. I suppose like a lot of people for the preceding few weeks, the main thing I've been thinking about is, are they going to get a majority or not? Um, obviously because of the way Boris Johnson has burned his bridges with every other party, including the DUP. Uh, if, if he failed to get that majority, then, you know, we could have seen a, a minority Labour government. So, yeah, my, first, uh, my eyes first went to the, to the Tory figure, you know, have they got the 3-2-6 uh, that they'll need? And having seen, you know, okay, they got the majority. I didn't look at the Labour results. And, you know, the exit poll said 191, which I absolutely could not believe. Uh, I've never, nobody who's been following elections has seen a Labour result of 191 since, I don't know, like just after the First World War, frankly. So I couldn't believe that and was absolutely shocked. Uh, as it turns out, of course, the exit poll was a, a bit too harsh on Labour. You know, we got 200 odd I couldn't believe the extent of the loss, really. I thought, you know, like most people, it would be a narrow Tory majority or, indeed, a hung parliament. So, yeah, shock, surprise. Um, Certainly, I uh, now I'm just wondering, you know, what was so different to 2017, frankly, right? So, 2017, I think a lot of people expected that result uh, and and were shocked when they got the hung parliament instead. So, what had changed? I was thinking, you know, why why did this... um, Fail so badly this time round when in 2017 it seemed as though we were maybe one final push away from victory.
0: Your political background, perhaps we can slow down a moment and go into that. That accent is Liverpoolian, Indeed, yeah. a city that did not vote Tory and historically has not. So tell us a little bit about your pedigree as a political writer.
1: Uh, I, well, I definitely identify as left wing and I've certainly been a member of the Labour Party since I was 18. I'm also a, a trade unionist and a prior trade unionist. My accent is, uh, you know, barely there now. In a lot of, if any scouts has listened, that we say. No, he doesn't really have a Scots accent, but there we are.
0: I'll be honest. I thought it was Welsh.
1: Yeah, I get that sometimes. Yeah, actually. which is not uncommon given the, the geographical mix of Liverpool's yeah. well mm. over the years. Yeah, Welsh or Irish. A lot mean. of people say sometimes. You know, can't quite pin it down.
0: I was already looking forward to talking to you about your book, mm. uh, "A Left for Itself: Left-Wing Hobbyists and Performative Radicalism." But I've been looking forward to it even more ever since the election result because it now seems oddly prescient. Mm, um, did you feel vindicated, or was it not nearly as assuring as all that?
1: uh definitely not vindicated more sort of uh oh my god i can't believe you know this is happening i didn't think that this you know this dramatic switch over where you had so many of the uh traditional working class so many traditional labor seats going tory i thought this was at least two elections away frankly it was definitely the trend that was going there I just didn't think it would happen so soon uh just to go back to your earlier question about my own sort of background in liverpool so definitely growing up i noticed that everyone was Labour. You know, everyone was left-wing. People voted Labour religiously, often without really thinking about it. But definitely people were bloody right-wing on so many issues like immigration, crime and punishment, personal responsibility, uh, all these sort of issues. And it was only when I went to university that I actually met all these quite posh people who were very left-wing in a different way. And I thought, you know, what's that about? So as a young man, I just saw this the fact that so many quote-unquote working-class people were so bloody right-wing on so many different issues, uh, I saw this as being one of the big chances of the future. So many typical Labour voters, all they did was bang on about immigration and associated sort of small C conservative or you might say big R reactionary issues like crime and punishment, like personal responsibility, like nationalism and and foreign policy and, and all the rest of it. And Labour was able to get away with it. But you know, this was said about Tony Blair, his assumption that, okay, we can move to the right on the economy to to get more middle class voters because the working class aren't going to go anywhere, right? And I think definitely that other Labour leaders, most recently Jeremy Corbyn, have felt that we can absolutely afford to pitch ourselves squarely at well educated, uh, usually young, usually white people in big cities uh, in terms of cultural issues. Because, you know, the sort of socially conservative uh, white working class are either going to vote for us anyway, or indeed some um, of the sort of intellectual architects of Corbynism, you might say, uh, have built their careers on completely denying that this is the case, have actually said not only that the, uh, you know, the traditional working class are not particularly small, C conservative, but that actually it's a form of class hatred to even say that they are.
0: The American philosopher, you quote Richard Rorty, Mm -hmm. warns of an educated elite or cosmopolitan upper class, as he puts it, that can very quickly undermine a sense of belonging and national pride, which he argues should be viewed in relation to a country as self-respect is viewed in relation to individual pride as a necessary condition for self-improvement. But pride as a prerequisite for improvement isn't something the left has been willing to countenance, is it? Mm.
1: Uh, Well, not recently, not recently. So there is a long history of this sort of radical patriotism on the left, which... It wasn't so much just combining the two, having them together, but actually the two were interconnected, right? And one was necessary for the other. So if you look back at the English Civil War era, right, you had plenty of people around then, uh, plenty of radical groups who were very sort of patriotic. Uh, in like the 18, uh, 1830s, 1840s, you had the Chartist movement, radical movement looking for economic change and political change, which again was very much patriotic. Uh, in the year of the First World War, you had the editor of the uh, most influential socialist paper, The Clarion. The editor was Robert Blatchford. And Blatchford has this brilliant quote where he says, you know, his Tory opponents attack him uh, for, um, for you know, not being proud of his country. And he says, not only am I proud of my country, I'm so proud of my country that I want the people of this country to possess this country. You know? So absolutely for him, is, as you say, it's about this idea of... Um, Mobilizing the cause of patriotism for self improvement and mobilizing the cause of patriotism for uh, redistribution of wealth, for socio economic change, for democracy.
0: So, what went wrong then in the left's view of national pride? I
1: think, a few, I mean, many things, right? So, on the one hand, you've got the, the sort of base of the Labour Party has completely changed, right? So, it's gone from being ordinary people, frankly, poor people, working class people, with a sort of smattering of middle class intellectual support and aristocratic support which was very successful, well, it was quite successful for a few decades, to being uh, something completely different. And I also think the locus of radicalization shifted, right? So back in the day, not so long ago, people got into the left, uh, they were they were radicalized, if you like, in the factory, on the shop floor, or indeed on the streets, right? You know, if you're a young black lad in Brixton in the 80s being battered by the police, uh, a gay man, you know, being bullied, um, there's the, the, sort of things that happen in your everyday life and what that moved
0: to the university exactly
1: yeah so the locust moved to the university and instead it was actually reading about this stuff it was reading about other people's suffering which brought people to the left and I have nothing against this sort of altruism. It's it's necessary. It's always been there. It's it's obviously very good in some ways.
0: That's what you question in the book, isn't it? The the idea that it is, in fact, altruistic as opposed to an assimilation of history into one's own lifestyle choice.
1: Yeah, exactly. Well, that's it, indeed. Is it a genuine sort of, you know, um, uh, uh, selfless idea of, I just want to help these people at no cost to myself? Or is it, this is about me, This is about what goes in my uh, social media biography, this is about my identity and my pastime, and great if it helps people, but frankly, you know, that's besides the point for a lot of people, as I can often be seen perhaps with the divergence between the views of this sort of hobbyist left and so many of the people they, they claim to represent or they want to fight for.
0: There are myriad ways in which the left has tried to circumvent debates around immigration, one example of which has been its attempts to emphasise the pro-immigration working class versus the anti-immigration rich. Um, However, its failure to deal more honestly with the immigration concerns of the working class is clearer now than it's ever been. What points of pride around immigration will the left have to swallow to ensure it never
1: lets this issue slip again? I mean, I think you would be quite optimistic there because I think we would have to have uh, a wholesale change in the sort of leadership of the Labour Party for them to...
0: It's optimistic you know, to think they could yeah, ever I, stop this I think from. there are
1: so many people uh, in the academic left, on the Twitter left, who would rather Labour is excluded from power in perpetuity than ever uh, shift their stance on immigration. Up, you know, it, it's, it's literally more than any other issue, I would say, including social economic reform, right? I think a lot of these people would rather privatise the NHS than they would restrict immigrants coming into the UK. It is such a totemic shibboleth for them. They associate any form of uh, restriction of immigration with sort of racist immigration policies, which is absolutely... Crazy for so many different reasons, and it's not as though um, the people who might be the victims of you know a restrictive immigration policy think that it is outrageous. You know, they might be pissed off that they themselves uh, might suffer from it, but they again don't necessarily think that the idea that a country should um, have a say in who is able to live and work there is itself you know a fascistic concept.
0: Now, before we go any further, um, hobbyism is what people know as woke. Or would you say that the two are roughly synonymous?
1: Yeah, I would. I mean, woke's, I think you know weirdly i started writing this book i think sort of 2015 2016 when the same woke was not that uh common. right the uh,
0: title is academically slightly niche
1: yeah i think a, a great someone uh tweeted me the other day with and i think this would have been a much better subtitle uh, someone said to me oh I, I, you know finally someone's written the book on socialist cosplay you know <laughs> which uh, it's again yeah i think that would have been a, the great subtitle <laughs> yeah that's you know. not a bad one I left for itself Socialist cosplay, basically, or you know, the rise of the woke left. Yeah, the idea that the
0: left has been captured by an educated elite seems demonstrably true, and mm. yet the left does already appear to want to redefine what class means, Absolutely. using the asset ownership gap between old and young to suggest working class is just as applicable to young people in low wage work as anywhere else. Hence, so many young people, they argue, voted Labour in this election. Now would seem like a bad time for the left. To seek to redefine working class Mm. just as it discovers how much it needs to listen to the actual working class in order to win it back.
1: Would you agree? Uh, Yes, absolutely. I think a lot of it is pretty convenient actually and I think that if uh, (laughs) Labour had won on Thursday night uh, either a majority or indeed if the quote-unquote traditional working class had saved us all from abolishing Johnson majority government, uh, then we would not be hearing any of this actually. I think it's making excuses after the fact
0: Let's have a look at this menu. Yeah. It looks great. Sorry to keep you waiting and stuff. But no, no, well, no, it's sausage. absolutely
1: fine. Hello, mate. do Sausage. And pork belly. Yeah,
0: I think I'm going to go for the uh, steak tartare. I did an interview with Martin Rouse, yeah, yeah, and he ordered yeah. the steak tartare, and I sat there just burning with envy. Let's talk about the leadership. Emily Thornbury has today announced her bid for leadership, and I'm sure by the time this goes out, others will have announced theirs. In fact, I think there's there's talk that Ed Miliband making a comeback. But <laughs> I did not hear that. Various That's people eyeing him as wow. a potential candidate. We'll see. What sort of leader does Labour now need? Do you think?
1: Really tough question. Obviously, uh, because whoever is going to be the Labour leader has to do all sorts of different things and appeal to all kinds of different people. I absolutely don't think that it needs to be, say, a Northerner, right? It doesn't need to be someone with real or imagined, you know, working class Northern roots and the right accent. No. You know, David Cameron, uh, Boris Johnson, they were able to win majorities despite their backgrounds, maybe even because of their backgrounds. Uh, One of the things that I think the left needs to come to terms with is why are so many traditional left-wing voters in Britain and America... Happier to vote for someone like David Cameron, uh, Nigel Farage, Boris Johnson, Donald Trump. Why do you think that is? Uh, I think for various reasons and only a small amount of it has to do with, say, opposition to immigrants and racism, frankly. That's a very small amount. I think it's more the idea that uh, a lot of people have felt ignored. And they feel that these people are at least saying what they feel that they themselves can't say. Right. I don't know, so many people on the left, they speak in far more vague, abstract terms, right? So Maurice Glasman, the big blue Labour thinker, uh, wrote something a few years ago where he talks about how traditionally the, the left in the UK didn't speak in abstract terms about things like equality or diversity. They spoke about socialism, right? They spoke about benefits for the workers and specific things that people will get. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was very concrete, very much rooted in the specific language of the people. Uh, and nowadays the left for whatever reason it feels that it needs to speak more in these abstract terms right in these theoretical terms again for the sort of reasons we were discussing earlier that so much so many of the foot soldiers of the left and the intellectual basis of it they love abstraction they love theory they came to the left not from uh, you know real life experience but you actually know,
0: reading Theodore Adorno and absolutely and, absolutely
1: and yeah. in, you know France, which, which famine, to be fair
0: I mean so I'm as guilty of as anybody
1: absolutely here. yeah I've read more Stuart Hall and Paul Gilroy than you know anyone who was an ac- a sociologist professionally yeah. You know,
0: but as um, you say, it makes a game of talking about politics.
1: Yeah, it's almost like they wanted to continue their studies, you know, through another means, right? Yeah, say, so, okay, well, I'm, exactly. I've left university now, but I'll just sort of carry on in my life by making my politics about this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so. Mm-hmm. Uh, Yeah, and I think because of that then, the left has some difficulties speaking plainly to people, uh, whereas the right, who are, of course, completely shameless and will do or say anything to get elected, don't have such compunctions.
0: To get back to the Labour leadership, does Keir Starmer ring your bell at all?
1: Well, you know, a few years ago maybe, um, I would have said Keir Starmer, I think he looks the part, you know, he's got great hair, which I think sadly shouldn't be important, but absolutely is, you know, really is. So Keir Starmer maybe looks and sounds the part. He's had a, a great career before politics, you know, as a sort of public servant and a prosecutor. The fact that he's uh you know MP for a North London seat I don't think matters. The fact that he was such a an ardent remainer and, you know, second referendum advocate might. For me, Lisa Nandy is someone I would automatically gravitate to. I've met Lisa a couple of times many years ago she seems like a very nice woman and really uh, I think authentic and has a good combination of both being aware of what people in Wigan feel and want But absolutely not wanting to capitulate to any kind of, you know, uh, nationalistic, uh, you know, exclusionary immigration policy or anything like that, because you realize that you don't have to, actually, you know, you just need to stop having such a cloth ear uh, for these traditional (laughs) voters. Basically, it's not necessarily rocket science. Uh, Someone who seems, Lisa Nandy, to have no truck at all with the, uh, you know, hobbyist uh, online left. Uh, so I think she'd be good. Whatever happens and whoever the leader is I think that a lot of Corbyn's media fanboys and girls need to take a back seat, you know, they need to shut the grids for at least a while you would think that given the historic scale of last Thursday's defeat they might have done of course they have not.
0: No because of course his biggest supporters online are professionally obliged not to wait things out. (laughs) In a sane world, anybody who is this wrong goes away for a while, thinks about it in in the comfort of their own mind but in state it all has to be projected L- let's get on to the subject of anti-semitism is this something the left and labor can purge
1: i think there's two different things of course there's anti-semitism within the left and there is the uh, anti-zionism and, and pro-palestinianism of the left and i think that the uh, the former as you say you know it's been around for a while actually right people have been writing about left-wing anti-semitism for a long time uh there's a great book in the 80s by this guy called steve cohen uh, entitled oh that's funny you don't look anti-semitic which is a nice title as well uh, definitely if you go back a hundred years uh, pl- there was plenty of anti-semitism on the left right even Keir Hardy himself who was usually pretty good on these issues uh, could come out with the odd uh, terrible line uh, and yeah so it's been around it's been there's been a strain of it unfortunately for many decades but there's no coincidence that nobody heard of this five years ago, right? Nobody heard this when when Ed Miliband was leader, uh, when Gordon Brown or Tony Blair was leader. It's something has happened since Corbyn McCain leader. We're almost like the drawbridge has been pulled up, and all of these cranks uh, have known that it's a, you know it's like a light a lighthouse flashing the light in the distance to say come home, <laughs> you know the par- the doors are open and the party's ready for you. We will welcome you in. Right. So I definitely think. If there's a change, not just in the leadership, but with the whole sort of gang behind Corbyn as well, if there is a rejection of the crank and conspiracist uh, worldview, which is so fundamental to Corbynism, then actually maybe these people, uh, well, firstly, they should bloody be expelled anyway, of course, and treated much more firmly than they have been. But definitely, I believe uh, that so many of these people will drift away, thank God, and go back to whatever rock they were living under uh, before 2015. I personally believe that when Corbyn goes, a lot of the members who joined for him and think Labour and Corbynism are inseparable and can only name one Labour MP, and that's Corbyn, will drift away. With the sort of anti-Zionism, pro-Palestinian thing, now, of course, that's a completely legitimate uh, worldview. You know, I'm a complete critic of Netanyahu and the Likud party and the actions of many Israeli governments over the past 50 years. And absolutely, um, you know, a left-wing party uh, should be criticising the Israeli government. right? Um, the thing is, uh, this can best be done from a position of power, right? Once you actually get into power uh, and you have the authority of the Foreign Office in the British state and all the rest of it, then you can actually you know, uh, get involved in these world affairs. I think that it should absolutely not be something that is a central policy of the Labour Party. You know, the waving of the Palestinian flags at the conference—absolutely bloody crazy. I mean, you know, you wouldn't wave the Eritrean flag or uh, I don't know the Armenian flag or any other uh, country that's had sort of land stolen off it. Of, you know, and of like Absolutely crazy the way these cranks uh, obsess with and, and so closely identify with this particular cause
0: another form of identity politics we haven't touched on yet is sex and gender
1: uh, so not so long ago when i was at university um uh, trans rights much like environmentalism was something that people might pay lip service to but didn't particularly care about you know yeah. i think the the t and LGBT was um not particularly important even 10 5 years ago possibly but uh, much as I do with everything else because I'm pretty bloody left-wing across the board you know, of course I support the rights of trans people and I also by the way uh, assumed that left-wing radical women like uh, Julie Bindle for example would be pretty uh, pretty you know, big on trans rights and, and obviously the more I read about this I realised that wasn't the case and I realised that lots of uh, radical feminists uh had all sorts of concerns with trans issues and my reaction to this was okay, interesting I'm not sure what I think about this but I know one thing, it's none of my bloody business and what shocked me actually was the alacrity with which lots of young men were happy to brand someone as a TERF, right? Who we were happy to say, I don't know, people like Jermaine Greer, uh, Julie Bindle, uh, even poor old Peter Tatchell, you know. People mm. who had literally fought and bled and been beaten and abused. Suddenly young, white, 20-something straight men felt entitled to brand them as TERFs and to, to, and to attack and abuse them. And I thought this was so indicative of exactly what I'm talking about, where the hobbyist left, these performative radicals can use these issues as a way of making themselves seem more interesting, as a way of themselves seeming more radical, without any uh, jeopardy for themselves.
0: But have you noticed that a straight white male can play off transgender against feminists as he will? That is, if he's coming from a conservative angle, he aligns himself now with the uh, so-called turf. It's become a convenient place to as, as so is, exploit right? <laughs> this, this moment,
1: and, and all of this done online, by the way, in yes. full view of everyone, just so everyone can see, in case they had any doubts, just how truly radical this white male is, you know, right, and how much right. of a hero he really is here, you know. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, absolutely. It's it's this one of these things. Like I think, as with um, uh, Palestinian rights activism. Uh, whilst there are obviously many merits to it I think the perfect issues for this sort of hobbyism because you know traditionally on the left uh, if, you were, if you weren't if you were working class people would say oh well you're, you're not working class why do you care right or if you supported black rights or gay rights oh well you're not black or gay why do you care but actually Firstly, with, say, Palestinian rights activism, because it's so many thousands of miles away, you know, it's it's completely unfeasible to say to someone, "Oh, well, you're not Palestinian, why do you give a damn? Because no one mm-hmm. is in the UK, hardly anyone is in the UK, right? Um, and likewise, with trans uh, activism, because so few people are trans, uh, it's dif- more difficult to say to the privileged white male, oh, why do you care about this, because you're not trans? Well, hardly anyone is, right? So I think the perfect issues for these people to latch on to... Uh, for that reason and also as I said before because it involves absolutely no sacrifice for them right they're not going to have to pay more in taxes uh, you know they're not going to have to be disadvantaged in applying for employment or to get their kids into certain universities or schools uh, they're not going to have to maybe accept people into the changing rooms or toilets that they don't want to because they're mayor right so it literally doesn't affect them either way so yeah as I say I think it's such a perfect issue for this mm. sort of you know uh, performative online radicalism to indicate just how much of a hero these people are
0: All right, so finally then, what do you think the Labour Party fundamentally got wrong in the end? And how do you see the most reasonable
1: path back? Really tough question, because obviously it's so easy to be wise after the event, uh, or at least it usually is. With this one, you know, we can say, oh, we should then this should then that. But frankly, we have to be very careful at assuming that, uh, you know it could so easily have been better if we just tweaked a few things or did a few things differently I think just in terms of the campaign itself there were some problems right so I think that the manifesto was a lot less tight uh, and a lot less focused than the 2017 manifesto I think often through hubris right from the assumption that oh we did so well in 2017 we can afford to be not just more radical but sort of more uh, diffuse in our aims frankly Uh, and also they kept seeming to add to it during the campaign you know it seemed to be constant new promises every week um something I mentioned in the podcast the other day is this this promise to the WASPy women, right, that they would find 58 billion uh, to to help out the WASPy women. Now, again, we can debate whether they should or shouldn't uh, have that policy, but the fact that they seem to make this up on the hoof during the campaign, right, this didn't seem to be something they would do before, and they just came up with it during the campaign, it seemed, and 58 billion, oh, never mind, just another 58 billion. So I think that was a problem. I think, again... Uh, aside from socio-economic policies and generally I do think as I think I said at the start that the shift to the left on the economy under Corbyn has been a good thing and I hope it continues because I think definitely uh, you know as a lot of the people who voted for Johnson proved you know there's, there's, a, there's an appetite for that
0: yeah that's why Corbyn said we won the argument I mean a lot of people uh, yeah. ridiculed him for that but yeah. that's what he meant yeah. we forced the
1: Conservative Party to tilt left the only problem is that they can simply do that and, and then actually win the argument on their cultural arguments you know, right. which, which the left is simply refuses to do yeah Aside from socio-economic policies, there is the whole cultural baggage, not just of Corbyn, but of the the movement of cranks which he inspired, right, with their uh, obsession with gender and, 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 and Israel, with their, uh, the the absolute shibboleth of open borders which not willing to compromise on, with their obsession with quote-unquote identity politics, which is ironic considering that nearly all of them are white. Uh, and I think this puts so many people off, right? Not just the fabled white working class in northern constituencies. So many people of colour, right, of different backgrounds are infuriated by this. Yeah? So many, I don't know, gay people, women, etc., infuriated by this, you know? It really is such a niche or has such a niche appeal uh, to people who have been very well educated and have read a load of post-colonial and feminist theory. And the problem is, it's very difficult to empirically um, categorize how, uh, sort of empirically measure how important these things are, right? One thing we can say is just it's been fully rejected by the electorate. But at the same time, uh, we know that most of the economic views are actually pretty popular, right? Again, look at the, the exit poll by Opinion which said, you know, why didn't you vote Labour? 42% said Corbyn. Well, it's not just because of his, his beard or his allotment, it's what he is seen to represent in terms of instinctive anti-Britishness, instinctive support for Britain's enemies, uh, open door immigration, uh, obsession with identity politics in the Middle East and gender and stuff, uh, fair or unfair, right? It is He is seen to represent a, a sort of student union type of politics and that i think was the biggest mistake of the campaign and i'm not sure whether it could have been avoided but it certainly needs to be avoided in the future
0: it's reassuring to hear a voice on the left with such a clear-sighted view to what's going wrong and how it can be fixed so uh, thanks very much david for joining me thank you you, cheers